audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. K-State fans will be very happy that March Madness is over. It's done, and you won't hear me talking about KU anymore after today. All of them say, hallelujah, amen. It's over. It's, it's done. Um, Monday night was an interesting night. Went to somebody's home, so I, I did that on purpose. Went to George and Janie's house, my family and myself, because Donna gets so excited at these games, and she can sometimes throw stuff and stuff like that. So if we go into another setting, she keeps it, she keeps it calm, you know? Now, I, I'm kind of the one who can tend to get a little excited at times. Um, and um, so I, I will tell you this, at the end of the first half, I was not excited at all. I was, I was, probably the best word would be stoic. I wasn't throwing anything. I wasn't yelling. I was just kind of in shock, I guess you'd say. And if you don't know what happened that night, KU was playing for the national championship, and in the first half, they were down by 15 points. 15 points. A deficit like that had never been overcome in the history of, of the championship game. Never had been done. And there's one guy in particular, though, who was not stoic, and he happens to play on KU's team. His name's David McCormick. And he spoke about this later, after the game. He said, as they left the court to head to the locker room, probably expecting a reaming, you know, from coach, which I don't know if that exactly happened. I wasn't there. But he was laughing and smiling. Okay? Now, the rest of his teammates are looking at him and saying, what are you smiling about? And he basically, this is, I mean, this is a quote. This is what he said. He said, let's just come out here, let's have fun and do what we were born to do. And he said, when he told them this, he said they told him that he was crazy. All right? Well, in the end, he should have been made the most valuable player of the Final Four, and he led that team back to the historic comeback, and they won the national championship. You see, in a time where most of his teammates are looking, and it's pretty dismal, he was looking with hope. Guys, where we left Acts chapter 2 last week was not a hopeful situation, okay? We sang a couple of songs today, and I would... Hope that if we were there in that time frame, that's the sort of things we would be saying or even singing. Most of those things were said or sung on the day that we call, in in looking back, Palm Sunday. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, the beginning of the week, and everybody is happy, happy, joy, joy. And they are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They are laying their coats on the ground. As he comes into the city on the colt of a donkey, it is a jubilant time. I mean, it is an exciting time. And I would hope that we would be in that crowd singing and shouting for joy. I would hope we would not have been in that crowd a few days later shouting something else. And where where Peter left this message, where we stopped last week, was basically with this. You know that guy that you you put on the cross? That guy that you crucified? He's not only alive. He's the Lord of everything. He will reign forever. And he is seated at the right hand of God. Okay, guys, just think about this just for a moment. From Superman to William Wallace... What do heroes do to those who wrongly accuse, humiliate, and torture them when they regain the upper hand? 
It's typically not pretty for those who did those things. Peter's preaching has had its intended effect. Peter, and I'm sure the Holy Spirit was involved in this, Peter did not just convince minds that day as he preached the gospel message. By the way, gospel message is this. Jesus came, he died, he was buried, and he arose, he lives. That's the gospel. And the message that he preached did not just convince minds, it convicted the consciences of people. Let's take a look at it. Verse 37. Verse 36, he says this, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, brothers, what shall we do? Guys, that word pierced that the New American Standard uses is a powerful, colorful, and violent word in the Greek. And it's not just a word, it is a phrase. It's a, it's a combination of words that basically means this, to be nailed down. And it is a violent being nailed down, if you will. The people heard this message and they were convicted. In other words, their backs are against the wall, they are vulnerable, and they know it. When you're in that position, you are wrong, and you know you are wrong, and you know that the consequences will be extreme. Now, fortunately, in the midst of their being pierced or nailed down, they ask the right question. I'm glad it just doesn't say they were pierced at heart and that's the end of it. They asked the right question. What do we do about this? Now, interestingly enough, I would imagine that there's some in this room that this, this church thing, this Christianity thing is somewhat relatively new to you. Perhaps you did not grow up with this. Perhaps when I say vacation Bible school, it does not ring any bells for you. When I mention, when I mention, I don't know when I was a kid if they had children's church. I don't know if that's more of a recent thing or not. In our church, we didn't have it, but it was a very, very small church, okay? Um, but we did have Sunday school for all ages. We did have camp, those sorts of things. And there was a song that would get thrown around back in the old days, occasionally. And the song was Father Abraham. Father Abraham, I have never understood the second half of that song. Okay, I can understand Father Abraham, many sons, many sons of Father Abraham. Okay, we have a connection to Abraham through Jesus. I can, I can understand that, but I never got this part. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot, head up, head down, turn around. Sit down. Okay, now when I was little, we wanted to make it a little more, a little more, Dramatic, if you will. Can you imagine, you know, first graders wanting to make something dramatic? So it wasn't, it wasn't turn around, sit down. It was turn around, fall down. I mean, that's like, I mean, you just crumple to the floor. What in the world does that have to do with Father Abraham? And I finally figured it out. It's Sunday school teachers and VBS teachers wanting to get some excess energy out before they start trying to teach these young people. That is the point of Father Abraham. But if you think about it, though, Maybe by the time we're done today, maybe there is a little bit more theology than meets the eye to Father Abraham. Turn around, fall down. Hold that thought for a moment. We will come back to that. 
Now, Peter is asked. Now, Peter, now there's the other apostles doing the same thing, but Peter's kind of center stage, forefront here. So Peter is the one who responds to those asking the question, okay, you got us, what do we do? Guys, for just a moment, let's not, because, because we might be familiar with this, let's not let this take away from the significance of it. This is the first time the gospel is preached. This is the first time the gospel is responded to. We understand that, right? The first time. So I think we probably better get our eyes open and look very closely at what happens next. The crowd says, brothers, what shall we do? Chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, before we get technical here for just a moment, this verse has been parsed, dissected, and debated for quite some time. And before we get into into any of that, what I don't want us to forget about is the fact that by Peter having a response says this, there's hope. There is hope. And as much as we think about that crowd, and I am quite certain that there were people in that crowd who did shout crucify him. I am quite certain there were people in that crowd who watched him being nailed to that cross, who watched the, the spear, the sword pierce his side, who watched them remove him from that cross, who witnessed all of it. Let's not forget when we look back upon this, you and I are just as guilty of putting him on that cross as the people who shouted crucify him. It wasn't just people who put him on the cross. It was the sin of people who put him on that cross. And I have a feeling every one of us in here, old enough to know what sin is, have done it. There is still hope for those who hear and respond to the call of God. Okay, so that's the first thing we've got to get. And then we see what he tells them. He says, okay, here's what you do. First of all, you repent. Guys, how many prophets of God have preached the same message to disobedient people? I'm just going to give you a handful of the many, and this is, this is not exhaustive. There, if I was to sit here and tell you how many prophets of God from Scripture who preach the message of repentance, it would take a while. But I'm just going to throw a few out there. Moses, the prophet Samuel, the prophet Nathan, the prophet Jonah, the prophet Joel, who's already been quoted once in this sermon of Peter's and will be quoted again before we're done today. So that's kind of old school there, just a little bit. But more recently, for the hearers of this sermon, you've got John the Baptist. Said the kingdom of God is near, repent. And then probably the headliner, Jesus himself, who called people to repentance. Let's talk about what it means to repent for just a moment. It is a turnaround. Now, it's not the turnaround and fall down, okay? 
of Father Abraham because I don't know about you, but for us that was like a 360, okay? You did a 360, okay? And then, then you fell down, all right? No, we're talking about an about face here. It's more of a 180. It's I'm no longer going this direction. This direction is not leading anywhere good. I'm going to turn around and go another direction. And that direction involves following Jesus. That is repentance. It is a, it is a, in the words, speaking of camp that I heard many years ago when Mike Elrod and myself, my brother-in-law, were deans of junior high camp ages ago, all right, like long time ago, dark ages, all right. Uh, uh, Dave Bycroft was our preacher, and he talked about repentance to a bunch of junior hires, and he said it's very simple, it's not complicated, it's not easy to do all the time, but he said it's stop doing what's wrong and start doing what's right, <laughs> It's not complicated. A little difficult, but it's not complicated. Let me tell you something. There might not be a better summation of answering the call of God in all the scripture than repent. Repent. So that is vitally important, incredibly important. And it is no surprise whatsoever that Peter would begin his instructions of response with repent. Change of direction. What could be seen as somewhat surprising, though, is the fact he also told those who were pierced by the message to be baptized. The shocking thing isn't the fact he told them this. The shocking thing is they had no qualms about it. It wasn't like, okay, what's this baptism thing you're speaking of? What, what, what is that? You see, baptism wasn't some newfangled idea. Ceremonial washings have been a part of Jewish tradition for centuries. And keep in mind, this crowd was all Jewish, the ones who responded. This is the day of Pentecost, it is a Jewish audience. John the Baptist, his disciples were what? They were baptized. It was a baptism of repentance. Now, what made Peter's instruction different is that this baptism was tied to the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness. And this baptism was also connected to the receiving of the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the first time we see the gospel preached, the instructions for response say this, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins that you might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And guys, brothers and sisters, this is a precedent that would be followed in the rest of the book of Acts as well as the rest of the New Testament. Now, you'll see bigger groups in the book of Acts, and we'll look at all of these in detail, so I'm just going to touch on them right now. Like when there's a big group, matter of fact, just a couple chapters away, it will say, and, and many believed, okay? Or it'll say, and those repented. Those are big settings, and that's just a summary of what took place. It doesn't mean they just repented and they didn't confess, or they just believed and didn't repent or be baptized. It's just a summation. But when you get to the details of personal encounters, Ethiopian eunuch, the Apostle Paul, Cornelius, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, along with some members of their homes as well, every single time baptism is included. Something we need to make sure that we understand about this. So listen very, very 
closely. Baptism in a biblical sense is wholly connected to repentance. If you get into the waters of baptism without a repentant heart, you better take some body wash in there with you because nothing else is going to get clean. You understand what I'm saying here? Repentance is always connected. Otherwise, it's just an act. Repentance is, must, it must be there. There is no biblical forgiveness without repentance within. Now, in summation, it basically looks like this. This whole encounter with Christ thing begins and answering the call begins with belief or conviction. And you might not see those words spelled out, but you see it happen. Guys, what, what happened in verse 37? They were pierced to the heart. They were convicted. Belief is so huge. Belief after this conviction of I need to do something takes place, it kind of metamorphosizes into something else. We call it faith. We also call it trust. It's trusting in the promises of God. And guys, that's where this all begins. It's belief in God, conviction that he keeps his promises, and the conviction that something's got to change here because I'm not in a good footing with God right now so you have belief you have repentance that we've already talked about okay you have confession now you don't see these people doing this because we don't get as we're going to see a whole bunch of just personal encounters of what these people do okay and confession is so much more than just telling a group of people in a public setting yes I believe he is he Christ is the son of God and that he died for me and that he lives Okay? We kind of call that confession or maybe even kind of a public confession. But guys, it doesn't stop there. A confession of Christ is something that is lived. You know what Paul calls it? He says, you're a living sacrifice. In other words, our words as well as our action and our behavior demonstrate this. I'm not living for me. I'm living for him. Because he lives. And he's my Lord. That is confession. It's more than just a formula stated, all right? And then there is baptism. Remember what I, what I, I told you about Father Abraham? Turn around, fall down, okay? This will be a little bit different. Turn around, die, okay? Because before there can be a new beginning of life, what has to take place first? Death. You see, baptism is a new beginning. It is God who chose this. He chose this to paint a very powerful picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. And this somehow connects us to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. Yes, it is an incredible formula that only God, only God could come up with. Peter 
wraps up his message here, but he does not wrap up his message without pulling a couple more punches here, all right? He, he does, he's not into pulling punches. So let's, let's continue with this. Verse 39. Paul says, or I keep on saying Paul. My goodness, I'm going to do that all through Acts. Once we get to Paul, I'll probably say Peter. Sorry. This is Peter speaking. Paul is still Saul. He's, it's bad news for him at this point. All right. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. It's interesting, Peter wraps up this sermon, again quoting the prophets, he quotes the prophet Isaiah, and once again, Joel comes to the scene, that prophet we don't know a whole lot about in the Old Testament, and yet the very first gospel sermon, he gets quoted twice. So Peter wraps up this message without pulling any punches at all, and my goodness, what a response. What a response. Um, many of you know, I, I do enjoy the, the, the podcast, Unashamed. All right, um, it kind of finds its basis in Al Robertson, whose dad is Phil Robertson and Jace. They're kind of the three main players in, in, this, in this podcast. I can't keep up with them. I, my goodness, they, they, they do a ton of content, all right? So I do listen to it, whether, whether uh, I haven't done it mowing yet. That would probably be a good idea, so I don't like mowing. But anyway, uh, I go to the gym. I'll listen to it at different times. I heard one a while back that was, that was pretty neat to hear. And um, it was told from the perspective of, of, of Al um, and Jace, who are brothers, and then there was another one involved, a, a guy named Stone, and he's one of their nephews by marriage, all right? And they were all at this, <laughs> that was kind of funny, they were all at this kind of young women's conference thing, okay? And the reason that they were there, they weren't the speakers <laughs> by any means, but, but Sadie Robertson, which I'm not sure, she's married now, so I'm not sure what her last name looks like, but Sadie Robertson, she was, she was the speaker at this thing, all right? Now, I don't know what the point of her being there was, what they were looking for, but this is why it goes with the Robertsons. You put them, a microphone in front of them, in front of a group of people, they're going to tell, the, they're going to preach the gospel. That's just, it's just what they do. So, so that's exactly what Sadie did, and she presents the gospel, and at the end of this thing, they were not prepared, let's just put it this way, all right? They're just in this auditorium type of thing. It was not a church auditorium. There's no baptistry in the back. There's nothing like that, okay? And she presents the message of the gospel. There's a response, and over 100 young women come forward. They want to be baptized. And all of a sudden, they're like, uh, what are we going to do here? So they somehow track down this big tub thing, and then, then Jace and Al and Stone get sent for water. So they're grabbing buckets, they're grabbing pitches, whatever they can, and they're just dumping it into this thing so that these over 100 young women can be baptized. And let me tell you something. Every one of those young ladies who got out of that water took something with her, okay? You know what it was? Water. Every one of them. So they get like 30 into it and they don't have enough water anymore. So they're going and getting more water. And, and they said the scene was absolute, total chaos. But they said it was chaos of the most wonderful kind. And that was a hundred. Let's look what happens here. 
He tells them, be saved from this perverse generation. And then look how the crowd responds, verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 3,000. Now, there's probably been some of us who've been to some revivals and stuff like that before. And you see people come down to the front. They jump in the water, something like that. And it's exciting. I, I love, that's one of the things I love about camp. At the end of camp, we usually have quite a few baptisms take place right there in the pool. And it is awesome. It's so wonderful. 3,000? Are you kidding me? I mean, the church starts here with the bang. Or, I mean, before... Peter began preaching that message, you got a handful of people. By the time that day's over, you got over 3,000. Wow. You know something, brothers and sisters? Much has changed in 2,000 years. You take just any member of that particular audience or maybe Peter or one of the disciples themselves and, and pull them into our society and throw them right in the, right in the middle of, of, um, of, of a shopping mall on Black Friday and just see what, what is this? And what are these things that's chariots that make noise out here in this parking lot and they don't have any horses in front of them? I mean, I mean a lot has changed in 2,000 years but what's most important has not. The message remains the same. And the message that Peter said to this audience, he ended with it. He said, be saved from this perverse generation. You know, we look at the world around us, the society that seems so bent on saying what is right is right wrong and what is wrong is right and we fall into this trap of thinking man nobody's seen anything like this before wrong been going on for a long time since sin entered this world and as corrupt as we might believe that society has gotten in our world today it's no more corrupt than it was in that day and as perverse as we might think it is today is no more perverse than it was in that day. The message remains the same. Be saved from this perverse generation. You see, the dilemma remains the same. And the dilemma is this. By our sin, we have separated ourselves from God. We weren't made for that. Adam and Eve walked in that garden with God. Can you imagine that? If you can't imagine it, get ready for it because that's what we're going to do in heaven. They walked with God. They sinned. They could no longer be in God's presence. They couldn't survive being in his presence any longer. The problem is sin. The message has not changed. The dilemma has not changed. And guess what? Neither has the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. It remains. The formula remains the same. Belief, trust in God and his promises. Confession, repentance, and baptism. The new life has not 
changed. Meaning this, when you become a follower of Jesus, yes, your life does change. But it's the same change that took place for those people then. The response did not end that day. We haven't finished this chapter yet. Take a look at what happens. You talk about living as living sacrifices. You talk about walking and talking confessions of Jesus Christ as Lord. Look what these people do. Beginning in verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They were together, people. It was church. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having found favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. These people had a new life and they just couldn't help talking about it. That life in Christ changed them to the point that they were going and selling their stuff and giving it to others who were in need. I mean, we're going to see more about that in in the verses, the chapters to come and get some of those details of what exactly was taking place here. What I'm telling you here, guys, is Jesus Christ still changes lives. He still makes us new. Hope still exists today. And we as followers of Jesus, our responsibility remains the same. We are to shine for our Lord and Savior. Our actions, our speech, our hearts, it must model the life, the heart, What drove Christ should drive us.